Carolina was the first English colony founded by people who had been in America for a generation, and which, at its founding, was surrounded by other colonies big and established enough to lend support. And yet, its first official settlement failed three years after being founded for all too familiar reasons. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. Before we start, I just want to take a minute to thank my newest Patreon, Kevin Gale. Thank you so much. It really does help to keep the podcast going. And like I said, I really do appreciate it on a personal level. When planning Carolina's first real settlement, the proprietors first had to decide where to plant it. They only wanted to sponsor one settlement to start with because population density was, as we discussed last week, key to settler security. And interested settlers had strong feelings on the topic. New Englanders were dedicated to the area around Cape Fear. They had sent William Hilton there before, so they had some familiarity with the region and it seemed like excellent farmland from Hilton's reports. It was also further away from existing Spanish settlements, and therefore potentially safer. And they had bought the land around there from the Indians, so there was probably some undercurrent of angling for political control of the future settlement. Barbadians, on the other hand, preferred Port Royal, which was better suited for transporting goods, including to their own colony, and which seemed to be every bit as fertile as Cape Fear. They dreamed of selling cornmeal, flour, beef, and pork to the sugar colonies, rather than trying to make a profit selling things like sugar and indigo to English merchants. The proprietors saw the validity of both sets of arguments, But when they started to favor Barbadian's Port Royal plan, and before they'd finalized their decision, New Englanders rushed to settle Cape Fear without permission. This was the settlement that was started the last episode. If proprietors were just leaning toward Port Royal, the hope was that they might not feel strongly enough to force an existing settlement to move, and therefore, Cape Fear would become the settlement, even if it wasn't the initial plan. The proprietors still agreed with Barbadian's vision for the colony, though, and they had deeper connections to Barbados than they did to New England. And they knew that the vast majority of the people who went to Carolina were likely to be Barbadians simply because of the colony's current economic situation and the number of poor and landless people there. Furthermore, Governor Willoughby had lent both official and unofficial support to the venture, so Barbados would be a reliable contributor to Carolina colonization. Barbados had already helped to fund Hilton's exploratory missions, and people from the local tribes had visited Barbados in what had by now 
become a relatively standard cultural exchange. Barbadians had circulated pamphlets recruiting settlers, and people were enthusiastic. They also tried to recruit women from England for the venture, with the promise that pretty much any woman could find a decent husband. A return to a golden age when men paid a dowry for their wives, for if they be but civil and under fifty years of age, some honest man or other will purchase them for their wives. All this to say that the proprietors did feel much more strongly about Port Royal than New Englanders had anticipated. New England had always involved itself in colonial efforts, for better and for worse, but Barbados was the colony that would make or break Carolina. So in 1665, as Barbados planned to send its first group of 85 settlers to Carolina, the proprietors did give them permission to settle at Port Royal. They didn't make the New Englanders move, but they did encourage Port Royal settlement by giving colonists there bigger grants of land than those at Cape Fear, and also making a Barbadian named John Yeamans governor, with New Englander Samuel Vassal acting as deputy. And New Englanders were decidedly displeased with all of this news. Yeamans had been in Barbados since 1637, well before the Civil Wars had broken out. He'd navigated the transition to sugar successfully enough to become wealthy, and he was, true to Barbadian form, aggressive, vocal, opinionated, belligerent, ambitious, and... He was also just a bit on the unscrupulous side, even by colonial standards. He had taken a lead in helping to plan the colony and recruit settlers, so in addition to making him governor, the proprietors urged the king to knight him and make him a baronet, which the king did. He would be governor for three years, and these limited governor terms were another Carolina innovation which would carry over into future U.S. politics. The standard for governor appointments had tended to be lifetime appointments with the possibility of removal, but the proprietors decided that they could better ensure stability and prevent conflict by making the appointment a three-year term with the possibility of renewal instead. As Barbadians arrived, they brought a variety of seeds, roots, and herbs like potatoes, indigo, tobacco, cotton, lemon, limes, oranges, apples, pears, and other fruit trees, they brought cattle from other colonies as well as hogs, and over the course of time they would also plant rice, rapeseed, and linseed. Some did try sugar, but they found out that it couldn't in fact be grown successfully there. In addition to all of this, they would grow local corn, trade for furs, and sell lumber, staves, and shingles to Barbados for house construction, as well as cypress for ship masts. So already, Carolina had a massive potential economic foundation. By supporting the activities of the Sugar Isles, they could help share in their wealth. 
They wouldn't be relegated to several decades worth of dabbling in tobacco until they figured out how to make profitable crops and industries work. They could have a diverse, flourishing economy that would grow quickly and almost from the get-go. The trip to Carolina was rough, though. The planned voyage took colonists first to Cape Fear to deliver supplies and then down to Port Royal to found their own settlement. But while they were en route, a storm destroyed the mast of their largest ship. They were able to fix it so that it was at least functional, but when they reached the Cape Fear area, another storm hit and pushed a second ship into some shoals and sunk it. Everyone on board survived, which was actually somewhat amazing, but that had been the ship with all of their ordnance and most of their food, clothing, and other supplies, and all of that was lost in the wreck. So two of the three ships had been either damaged or destroyed, and when they sent the last undamaged ship to Virginia to buy more food and clothing, that one also wrecked at Point Lookout, again losing all of its supplies, but again sparing most of the crew. So by the end of the trip, all they had was one damaged frigate and no supplies. They tried to send the frigate to Barbados to collect yet another batch of supplies, but the weather still wasn't great and the ship still wasn't in great shape. And with the combination of factors, the ship, which should have been able to get to Barbados in about 14 days, was stuck bobbing helplessly on the open sea for several weeks. The captain was overwhelmed by the situation, and in a story unlike any that I've read about so far, he went into a frenzy and jumped overboard to his death. The ship only made it back to Cape Fear because a young boy, probably 12 to 13 years old, managed to take control of it and get it back. Establishing a Port Royal colony was looking unfeasible after everything that had happened, but Yemen sent a group of boats down to explore the area anyway. This six-week mission actually went well, and in fact, exploration around Carolina had always gone well. The local tribes had never been anything less than gracious and welcoming, and even when Hilton had first visited the region, only one warrior had shot an arrow in their general direction. He'd been chastised by his tribe's leader, known in this region as a cacique, who had then offered the English two beautiful young women to make up for the trouble. Hilton had politely refused, but distributed gifts to the cacique and the women to prevent any offense, and then the tribe had given the English a bunch of fresh fish for their return voyage. And this new trip, commissioned by Yemens and led by Robert Sanford, was no different. Sanford had led a particularly interesting life. He was a Barbadian who had grown up on James Drax's plantation, initially as an indentured servant and he had recently spent time in Willoughby's Suriname colony. You might remember how utterly brutal that place was, 
to the point that Willoughby had been stabbed almost to death during his visit there. Sanford was one of the most intense among the colonists there, and he had been a part of a group that had rejected and rebelled against the local government, and he had had to go to England to appeal his court-martial for that. In Barbados, too, he had been arrested for treason for his leadership in revolts against Willoughby, and he saw in Carolina the possibility of a new start, both personally and in a new colony, where things might operate in a way that better resembled his own intensely Republican ideology. He had met with Shaftesbury and the other proprietors, and he liked their vision enough to throw his lot in with it. And I'm sure they'd seen in him someone with the competence and experience to help the settlement thrive. Sanford's little fleet, if you could call it that, was pretty pathetic. He was in that damaged frigate, and he was joined by a sloop with a disturbing number of rotten boards. That sloop disappeared soon after they left Cape Fear, but Sanford continued his journey. First, he met members of the Adisto tribe, who guided his party to their cacique in a couple of canoes. One of these men was Shadu, a member of the tribe who had visited Barbados after Hilton's voyage. They spent a few days getting to know the tribal leadership, and the cacique spent the night on board the frigate out of curiosity. He also gave them seats of honor equal to his own at his own house, and he told them all about the area and sold them some land. And as the English departed, some of the Adisto accompanied them. A few miles downriver, another tribe hailed them. This was the Kiowa tribe, and if anything, they worked to outdo the Adisto in terms of hospitality, though Sanford couldn't stay long because of the weather. And finally, he reached Port Royal, where he saw a cross which had been erected by the Spanish and where he was surprised to find the lost sloop. And where again, the local tribe, the Eskimaku, welcomed them with similar enthusiasm. The cacique came aboard their ship with his nephew, who he said would like to join the English. In exchange, the ship's surgeon, Henry Woodward, would stay with the Eskimaku to learn their language and culture. The cacique immediately gave Woodward a large plot of land, and again, he sat the 20-year-old Englishman beside himself as his equal. He sent his own niece to act as Woodward's servant, and Sanford left Woodward in charge of the area, partly to learn the local language and customs, and partly to hold it in case of Spanish or other European arrival. And after a few days there, they returned to Cape Fear. As they sailed back to Cape Fear, Sanford observed the interactions among the Edisto Kiowa and Eskimaku representatives, and he concluded that all three tribes were angling for an English alliance. 
The English playing a role in intertribal dynamics had been a thing since Roanoke, and after nearly a century of experience, they were starting to understand this more and more. For the local tribes, an English alliance meant a higher trading priority and military advantage against potential rivals. Sanford didn't want the English to be pulled into this tricky and dangerous political landscape, so he was very careful to treat each tribe and delegate completely equally, and to avoid doing anything which might be construed by anyone as favoritism. When he returned to Cape Fear, it was to an exuberant reception. The mission had been a big success, and Sanford announced that the Port Royal area was everything that they'd dreamed, a perfect location for a perfect commonwealth. The colony might not be in a position to settle Port Royal yet, but soon. This was the first and only real success that the colony had had, too. Political and cultural rivalries at Cape Fear had further eroded the settlement, and the geography of the area had proven incompatible with proprietors' plans for a dense population. Because of the prevalence of swampland, when the colony's population expanded to its maximum of 800 people, they had to scatter 60 miles up and down the local river. Colonists also didn't want to have to pay a quit rent on this non-arable swampland. They were already paying double the normal, and they certainly didn't want to pay that for land they couldn't make money from. They wrote a petition asking proprietors to reconsider the policy, potentially having them pay double even the current quit rent, meaning four times the average, on arable land, so they could avoid taxing swampland at all. They asked Yemens to sign the petition, and while he didn't want to put his name on a petition, he did agree to write a personal letter supporting it. Meanwhile, Vassal, Sanford, and 12 other colony leaders did sign the document, and they sent it to London as Yemen returned to Barbados. But the proprietors refused the requested changes, and this was the beginning of a spiral that is all too common in our story. Barbadians and New Englanders didn't particularly get along, and New England resentment was exacerbated by proprietor preference for the Port Royal Colony. While Barbadians weren't happy that New Englanders had gotten away with their Cape Fear sneakiness at all. And these were the two main groups of the colony. There were some Virginians and Bermudians, but not nearly enough to actually buffer the two rival groups, and even if there had been, it's hard to imagine either remaining impartial. Carolinians had lost three intended supply ships, two of which had been full when they sank. And it's not as if there were enough supplies floating around to be able to lose that quantity of food, clothes, tools, and weapons. Virginia was chronically weak, and Barbados was a net importer of food, and New England was set up for trade, not for providing huge amounts of goods itself. They sent a shipment of food and clothes, 
but it was nowhere near enough to slow the decline. To make matters even worse, the Great Fire of London and a plague epidemic had both struck England within just a few months of each other, and Carolina proprietors like Albemarle and Shaftesbury were put in charge of handling the situation. John Coliton could have led the colony single-handedly during this period, but he died, and then the Second Anglo-Dutch War broke out, and it consumed both Barbados and England, it killed Governor Willoughby, and it also led to a Dutch attack on the Chesapeake, which captured yet another ship full of food bound for Carolina. It's a variation of the same old story, but with one major difference. Carolinian colonists were not the overwhelmed Englishmen of old who quietly lamented or meekly complained while blundering their way through challenges. They were a new generation who had grown up in the wilds of America and had no problems voicing their opinions or acting on them. Belligerent, rough, tough, competent, but uncooperative. Vassal echoed common sentiment about these people when he wrote to England that the rude rabble of our inhabitants are more daily ready to mutiny against me for keeping them here so long. This is a constant theme in Carolina history, and a relatively new one for America as a whole. And then, on top of everything else, came the Cape Fear War. We don't even know how it started or exactly why, but local tribes attacked the English. It was a stark and seemingly sudden change from the overwhelming hospitality and enthusiasm that had characterized early interactions. Some speculate that the local tribes were alarmed by the sheer quantity of land that the English were taking or the quantity of people that they were sending there. News traveled fast and far among the indigenous population, though, so they should have certainly been aware of this inevitability. Another theory is that conflict arose over ownership of the livestock that the first New Englanders had left there in 1660. Certainly the colonists would have been eager to reclaim them given their supply troubles, but the tribes had learned animal husbandry and had grown to value the cattle and hogs too. Several years later, could they really be considered the property of the English? And perhaps it was an extension of tribal politics that the English weren't fully privy to. We just don't know. There's very little documentation of this war or its causes, but regardless, it came. And the widely dispersed English were extremely vulnerable to attack just as the proprietors had feared. And even the ones who managed to reach the colony's meeting house, its one truly fortifiable building, couldn't be guaranteed space or protection there because it was so small. So it was war. It was brutal, and it was bloody on both sides. Neither side was overwhelmingly stronger than the other, and neither was particularly well protected. 
There's record of local prisoners being sent to the Caribbean as slaves, and we don't even know how many English people died. What we do know is that this was enough to force the English to leave. After a steady trickle had made its way to Virginia, Vassal admitted that it was hopeless and hired a handful of ships at his own personal expense to take the remaining settlers to Virginia, and from there to Boston or Barbados if they chose. Most of them either went to Boston or stayed in southern Virginia. Vassal tried to recruit 20 people to stay and maintain the settlement, knowing that he had enough corn to sustain that number of people for two years. But everyone refused, and on the trip to Virginia, both Vassal and his son Henry also died. One of the last things that Vassal did was to write to the now-dead Coliton, explaining that they had had to leave because they couldn't defend themselves and they had no supplies, and criticizing the favor that the proprietors had shown to Port Royal over Cape Fear, and lamenting the failure of a colony that he had been trying to start for 30 years. So after three years, in 1667, the second major settlement attempt in the Carolina colony had failed, leaving little more than the account of Sanford's six-week exploratory voyage. We don't even know the names of most of the settlers or the casualty count of the war that forced them to leave. They left little behind for future archaeologists or genealogists, and it would be three years before anyone tried to settle Carolina again. And when they did, it would be at neither Port Royal nor Cape Fear. Cape Fear, in particular, would remain devoid of settlers for the next 50 years. But when it was resettled again, the movement to do so would be led by a group of Yemen's descendants. The progression of American history and the evolving realities of colonization had led to another noteworthy difference in the way that this story played out compared to previous ones. When Cape Fear failed, colonists were able to leave, and being led by a colonist sympathetic to their plight, they were actively supported in leaving. Basil's life had been a morally interesting one, with his being a Puritan who had both advanced and opposed New England's religious authoritarianism, and someone who had truly encouraged the development of the slave trade. But his last action was to use his own money to save the lives of colonists under his command, and to help them get where they needed to be without economic devastation. These colonists were able to actually move on with their lives when they got to their destinations, And this has not been the norm for our story. And the fact that he was able to do this was, again, thanks to the more fleshed out American colonial landscape where he could send them to Virginia, New England, and Barbados instead of all the way across the Atlantic. Two settlements had come and gone 
and lessons had been learned, but there was still no real Carolina. The third time would be the charm, though, and next episode we'll discuss that. The Carolina Colony's first permanent settlement. <laughs>